you could basically do anything. So I took that one step further. And I was like, okay, let me make a movie on my own or at least get it as far as I can get it, you know, without a huge production crew. And so that's been a labor of love. Welcome to Artist Works, where we explore the labor concepts and inspiration behind the art illuminating and shaping our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Patrick Hale, who is an award-winning commercial and film director and children's book author. So, Patrick, thanks so much for your time. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And could we begin by you just introducing yourself? My name is Patrick Hale, and I own a video production company in D.C., and I would like to potentially branch off into bigger and more diversified sort of areas of art, e-books and video games, stuff like that. But for now, I'm in D.C., so I make political videos and videos for nonprofits, essentially, and on my way to trying to get out and go to Hollywood. So <laughs> it's been an interesting run. Yeah. And just for the audience's background, I worked with Patrick for the first time, or at least I was a fly in the wall for one of the 48 hour film fests in, in DC and got to see you and Sean and uh, Sergey and others put together a film in a very short amount of time and uh, be able to deliver it just within two minutes of the 48 hour film fest, closing the doors <laughs> in a very dramatic last drive through red lights and everything else across Washington, DC. Yeah, uh, that was pretty insane. <laughs> And then you also helped out with some filming in New York, which also is a whole nother side story. But I really wanted to focus on this, this new project you have called Body Electric. So what is this and what, what kind of inspired you to create this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I wrote it with Michael Adams, who's a, in his own right, a great writer. And so him and I were gestating on ideas for... I. I I wanted to make a film that could be done on our budget at the time, which was, I, I, I was seeking like five grand, right? That's what, that's the amount of money that I had in my head that would be enough to make this thing. And so that means we had to get, make it short. And that also means that special effects were kept to a minimum and that it was basically a human story. And uh, Michael writes fiction, but not necessarily science fiction. He hadn't before. And so it's been my great joy trying to sort of coax him into the science fiction world. And he's loved it. And I think we work really well together. And so what ended up happening was that this story went from a 20 minute sort of five grand budget to people started liking it and they got more interested and started asking questions about like the synthetics feelings and how they interact with the world. And then I got interested in it too. And so I'd come back, we'd leave the writers meetings and uh, which were only an hour for every Monday for like two or three years. And uh, he had a he had a, a baby boy, Bash, who would come over. And so it would be me and Michael at the computer and then Bash would be running around in Solaria and it was great. <clears throat> and we did that for like two years. And, uh, and so right at the beginning of COVID, we finally got like a working script. And so what does that mean? Like where... Okay, great. What do you do now? Not only did I not have the $5,000 to make a script, going from 20 minutes to then the script kept on getting longer, right? So how do you sell a script? Is it like, who buys a 20 minute script? Is it only festival submissions? And then 
sort of as a portfolio piece that you're like, I made this, I can write, here's my reviews, I think is how you would go into a writer's meeting. Who knows? Nobody tells anyone <laughs> for some reason. And uh, Google is, is just its own sort of confirmation bias, like infinite loop, you know, so you can find out anything, but only things you're looking for in that direct circle. And then it just goes back. So yeah, there was, it was very slim pickings on what to do next. So I found, finally found a, a good review site, which is blacklist.com. And it's basically the only place that people go that's worth professionally, that's they post scripts and then you can, you host a script on there, you pay a monthly fee or whatever, you have a script and then you can buy evaluations and those go along with your script pretty much in perpetuity, unless you choose to delete those scripts, in which case it definitely says it on there. So it's got this like life cycle to it that isn't like necessarily any other thing that I've seen. Like it, like in the way that IMDB is really hard to get credits on because they have to second and third and fourth check everything and like in order to validify what, you're, what you've been doing. It's kind of the same way with scripts. So we got to make sure that I wrote it and what is it about? And it's, do you have a query letter and what's the log line? And like all this stuff has nothing to do with the script, mind you. Like this is all like extra It's the stuff. business behind it. Yeah. Right? It's the business behind it, which I guess someone else does. I don't know. <laughs> Who else would do this besides an agent? Like you get lucky and you get an agent and they do it for you, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, that's how I did it. So we got like a couple of reviews and, and they were, you know, pretty positive for having a 30 page script and we we're like, all right, well, let's write some more and we wrote some more and we find it. And like, and then two years passed and like seven evaluations later, and we finally have a series of, of great ones and made sure not to delete the other ones. So it looks more honest and, you know, we have integrity we don't delete our reviews or whatever. <laughs> Still, I no one's bought it. So I don't know if this works, but, 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 but the site helps. And then oh, I found out a little bit more about like query letters and who am I actually sending these things to? Where do you go? Like I was in Los Angeles and I was taking a cab back to LAX and I got in with a cab driver who of course has friends that are in the industry. And, uh, and he <laughs> Just said, pay him a little extra and I'll drive you to there. Man, I, <laughs> I, I thought it was a cliche. Like I didn't realize that everyone in Los Angeles is in the entertainment industry or like entertainment industry adjacent. You know, you work on cars, but you work on cars for movies or you, you know, someone who is like a third cast member for a current TV show, or, you know, someone's right. But I've never actually met any of these other people. He's <laughs> ever one person, one person, Tesh, who is wonderful as an actor that I got to come out and sort of give me the, what does a modern script look like? How does it read to actors? And is what I have even a start? And he said, yes, no, maybe they don't use paper scripts anymore. So this one's going to trash. <laughs> and because and, I had brought all my scripts along when I met him. It was like a little stack of scripts. He was like, yeah, no one does it anymore. I'm like, okay, cool. Right. So sorry, all those double tree ends that I used their paper from on the way over. So anyway, it's a lot more difficult than I thought. It would be, but then that's the only reason that I take, I would want to do any of this stuff anyway. So this is also fun for me is kind of finding out the information. So was this your first science fiction script then, Body Electric? Mm, and would you yeah. call would you call it a science fiction project? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely science fiction and it's definitely, I think my first one, although I've written, I mean, all of my... All of my short films are all kind of science fiction-y, I guess. They have like a, there's some, something 
stranger going on, I guess. That's the string I have in all my films. Is there something is happening behind the scenes? And I guess I contribute that to science fiction, but not necessarily. So, but yeah, this is the only, this is the only, this is the first fully fledged script that I have that I felt was a good story to tell in a science fiction world. Just because it's hard because science because science fiction is such a you can basically do anything a lot of people have already done that and they've, they've done it so well that it kind of feels to me like robbing robbing the original authors if you're just cribbing their sort of ideas and putting them into your own like everyone everyone's movie now if you want to make a science fiction it's Blade Runner right that's the that did like every every neo-noir science fiction movie that's ever been made since 1984 is looks like Blade Runner. And I have no idea why. Blade Runner looks cool, but there's no other worlds? Yeah. Like, why does Star Wars... Why aren't there any, like, water world? Like, what, what's going on? Like, why, are, why is everyone on a fucking desert? Why is everyone looking androgynous now? Why aren't there more aliens? Why aren't there more aliens? <laughs> like, we have, we have computers now. Why aren't there fucking insane... Like... I, I, I think it's a lack of imagination because if Jim Henson saw what was going on, he'd like he'd go insane. It, I, also, I wanted to do something where it would bring practical effects back into sort of science fiction as well. So I'm a huge fan of like Star Wars and Star Trek and Dune and Blade Runner and all these and all, all everything Jim Henson does Dark Crystal just to name one but um, all these were great practical effects and they didn't take away from the story they added to it and i see the exact same the exact opposite thing happening now where this we have all this technology but it's not adding anything to the story why w what's happening so I, 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 honestly i have no idea <laughs> Well, this body electric really aesthetically, I, I saw posts that you were doing on Patreon and LinkedIn and on Instagram and YouTube. And I was like, damn, this is just amazing graphics that you've animated. And I, I wasn't familiar with your background in graphic animation and then saw more footage that you posted where you're actually 3D printing guns and different types of spaceships. And that's and and then yeah, I mean that's those are awesome. Those are dope. Those are awesome. <laughs> this is the detective's weapon that took me a lot longer to. It's weird when you print them because you can look at them while they're printing, and it's like ten hours or fourteen hours or something like that. And then you have it, and it's this mix of like jumbled plastic that you have to then pry off of to get a shape. And then you have to sand it down, and then you have to putty it, and then you have to give it some weight, right? Like. No one's going to hold like a light piece of like paper in their hands. Like, how do you add weight to it? You already printed it. So are you <laughs> drilling a hole through it, putting in batteries? Because that's what I did. But it's kind of interesting. All this like research and development has become so, everything's gotten so small and the information is so not easily available, but it is available that if one could just sort of make himself available to it, not easily available, but it is available that if one could just sort of make himself available to it, you could basically do anything. So I took that one step further. And I was like, okay, let me make a movie on my own or at least get it as far as I can get it, you know, without a huge production crew. And so that's been a labor of love. It's been 3D printing. It's how do I learn how to code for Unreal or what, what even is Unreal? Like 
why would I choose Unreal over Unity, which is the other engine? Mm. Yeah, what, what, what is Unreal and what is Un Unity for the, the layman? Great question. So Unity is, I think, the longer running, more robust sort of professional pickup and create game creation tool. And then Unreal came in and they released, well, first the first game Unreal like shocked everyone with like its great, insane graphics at the time. And I remember getting the box and those big computer boxes were like the size of your head and they had like fold open Velcro front patches and like, it was awesome. And just getting the box was really cool. And then, so they made a, they decided to make their code available for regular people, kids. And then on top of that, they started releasing educational, like high quality educational videos to go along with sort of their tool set. And then they released Fortnite and then everything exploded. And then it was like, oh, Unreal's the, there's only Unreal and Unity. Like that's it now. That's basically it. And it's all C++ based coding, which my mom did C++ for her, her job, which she was a systems analyst, I think for the Navy back in 1996, she was playing Diablo 2, I remember, and then studying for C++. And because Diablo 2 was so good, she was getting poor grades in her C++ class. So, <laughs> so it's a weird sort of, it came full circle and now I'm using C++ so I can talk to my mom about <laughs> coding. It's like, it's pretty cool. And then yeah, and I tried to get people on board, but it's there is a definite there's a bar there's a barrier to entry for anything creative, and then once you get even getting there, there's a barrier to entry. Like anything 3D is sort of CAD software is was not ubiquitous. Like it was for a professional setting only, and only if you had a really great computer. And now I can go to tinkercad.com, which is a free online tool that is fully functional, but it's sort of dumbed down and designed for kids. And I would, I didn't know anything about, I didn't know CAD stood for computer and computer assisted design. I had no idea. I found that out years later, a year later. Anyway, so I was on Tinkercad and um, you can make these shapes with other shapes. And then I learned, okay, that's called like, that's Boolean logic is making a shape into another shape and or the opposite. And so you can create all these huge, very complex models with just like a circle and a square. And it's all online and it's free. So I actually use that software to make the hero model for the game. And like, it's like, it's amazing what you do with like circles and squares. Like it actually, it was free. And then I could take that model and I put it into Blender, which is another free app that like, is for composition and like painting and mesh work. And, and I was like, okay, so now I have a 3D model that I used photogrammetry to get into the, which means taking a whole bunch of pictures and the computer extrapolating that information and making sort of a 3D representation of it, which is a newer thing that just became available. So I'm kind of working backwards. I, I made it in Tinkercad and then I printed it and then I painted it and then I did photographs of it and then I put it back in the computer and then I animated it. And so now I have this like photorealistic car that I painted in real life and I put it back on the computer and I swear to God, it looks so much like it's a, it, I don't even know what it is. There's a quality to it. That's that it looks like it was handmade versus looks like it was made in a computer. And uh, for the life of me, I couldn't, I couldn't explain what it is, but it, there is some quality there that still, it transcends the digital media. Like, you know, okay, that's real.
yeah, it came from it came from the fit like came from the mind, obviously, in digital printing, but then it became this physical manifestation that then goes back <laughs> into the system, which yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, and that yeah. most people won't do that extra layer that you well, it's, you've it's, done. Like, yeah. All these systems are here, but like I wanted to create a system where like you could do it for a production house. Like you could have all the stuff like you would need in like a single room, basically. It's your studio, it's your effects department, it's your makeup and hair, and it's your, you know, props. All in one place. And it's, you could do it now, but I, it, what's in the Paramount lot? Like, what are they doing? Is there <laughs> nothing now? Is it just like a big white screen? And like, you just walk on stage with like a green screen outfit and there's nothing else? What are they doing? Where's all the money go? Well, Subcontractors and the pockets of executives, probably. <laughs> that, that, that's got to be the case. Because there's, they're not paying the uh, 3D you know, creators. Like all those companies are, are now being outsourced to you know, China. And Czech Republic is a huge gaming center. Prague is a big place for kids now. And it's, it's weird. So that all, that, all that work is moving out. And so to go to this, go to Hollywood now, that's, it seems like it's pared down. It seems like it would, it's sort of like the Hollywood of like yesteryear is kind of what it feels like because all the jobs, you know, unless you're a face or a writer, there's really like, or you're totally separate and you're just make, you're just doing the videos and stuff like that. The whole production department is there, but like, other than that, that's the only, that's the only reason to be there that would conceivably, otherwise the whole city is a. I don't know. It, it, <laughs> so, was really, it was really weird. It was a really bizarre, yeah. really bizarre thing. And I was there 20 years ago as a kid and it's changed. And then, man, I would have, I would love to see it 20 years before that. Yeah. It's one of those, one of those weird cities. Anyway. So, so body electric too, mm -hmm. or when, when I'm also looking at it, I love this idea of this from the planet. There's an elevator going into the low orbit of the planet and i'm very interested in space and space exploration and right now we spend a lot of our energy just in the rocket fuel trying to get off of the 1g gravity and i have seen in other hypothetical concepts that if we could build some type of pulley system that could just hang outside the earth orbit and could bring up a lot of the the weighted objects so we could build space stations and things like that. I have seen it theorized, but I've never actually seen it so visually articulated on screen as, as you've done. And so what, what is the story behind Body Electric? Like what, it, what is the, if you were doing a film treatment pitch type thing, like what, what is this, that, that, that beautiful technology that you've, you've brought in, into the world? Um, we wanted to do a real story first and set it in a realistic environment so that people could buy into it quicker. And what we found is that it's basically all story and the environment matters kind of very little, unless you're really going to be specific, sort of leave the details out is basically what the script evaluators were telling us is like, don't be as verbose. Like I was getting intricate like i was like the elevator looks like this and like the birds look like that and like they're this caprito was like i don't need to this is why do i need to know this and so that was interesting to hear too but uh, this story is about it's an anthology series and it's a new sort of sentience emerges inside of a robot named john but that's it 
and he escapes and he goes to and lives on a colony right outside of Moloch, which is where the space elevator is, sort of the gateway to the gods, as it were, which is attached to an asteroid that they towed into low Earth orbit and then built from the top down. And the reason why they did that, I found the, okay, so I'm going to name drop here. Isaac Arthur runs a great YouTube channel called Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. And uh, he's like brilliant physicist. And I think he's also, I, I think he's a nuclear physicist, but he was also in the military as well. And he's just a really great articulator and like extrapolator of ideas. So one of the episodes was, and I was actually watching, watching this while writing Body Electric is kind of how it ended up like this because all of the things are fact-based and they would do conjecture and like sort of hypothesize, but it was always grounded in science. And he always had these great pictures on there. So I looked at one of the pictures and one of the pictures was of a space elevator that was going from low earth orbit. And they always show like a space station. And so I, I thought, well, wh what if we just got a big rock and it was a, it was a it was an asteroid that had all of the, all of the necessary tools or what do you call it? Material to build an elevator, like the steel or whatever. So you could do all of your manufacturing up there and then just build it straight down. I saw an episode of his that was in fact about space elevators and I was like, okay, this is great. And then he said, the reason why you build top down is because gravity eventually gets the best of you. So it doesn't matter what kind of, we don't have the materials available yet that can withstand the pressure of so much weight pulling down on it, which is why you can't, there's a finite, there's a, there's a limit to how tall you can get. Like there's a reason why the Burj Khalifa is only that tall and that stable. And there's another one in, I think, Seoul that has a giant weight device in the middle of the top of the building so that it counterbalances the earthquakes which I thought was really cool. So, but they only go so high, they only go so high until they collapse in themselves, which is why you have to build top down, <laughs> which I didn't know before. And I thought that was really cool. And I said, and I thought to myself, well, how, how are we going to get stuff up there? We're not going to fly it up there and then build it down. I mean, that would be, that would take a, you just couldn't be done basically. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, what if we, they, they went out 30 years before before the proxy war happens, which is a war fought using only synthetics and robots in, in our mythology. So right before the war happens, the, the earth galvanizes and they send out this mission to go get an asteroid and then tug it into low earth orbits. So they can sort of get a, get a move on to explore the galaxy. And as they go get this asteroid, a huge 30 year war happens where it's these robots basically fighting each other on the plains of Africa. And coincidentally, the things, these space elevators can only exist within like a five to 10 degree margin of error within the equator. So there is a, like, and once I found that out, we started doing, started looking at all the places in Africa and there's this beauty in the Republic of Congo, there's Kinshasa and its sister city are located right outside of a large island surrounded by water that's within 10 degrees of the equator. And I thought, well, how freaking cool would that be? Is this weird tale of two cities with this brand new kind of corporation building a gateway to the gods just in the middle of the plains of South Africa. I mean, the plains of North Africa. I thought, what a cool, what, that just sounds cool, man. And, and then <laughs> all this stuff sort of made sense. Like you would use the natural water system for like a cooling device and they would have to tear the island up anyway. So all of the rocks and artifice and stuff like that would be unnatural. 
So they would put it, they put all that stuff back as like for looks, you know what I mean? Like there's a stuff started like jumping off the page in terms of what you would use to sort of all these, uh, all these problems come up when you start thinking about it and you're like, oh, but there'll be a robot that does this or humans would do this to do that. And now I have three hour long scripts and like, (laughs) it's like 350 pages of you know, just Patrick and Michael. That that's it, it, it's. I'm still like finding that the story is about John, who's like this messianic, um, synthetic figure who like sort of dies for the cause. And he doesn't. He's convicted of a murder that he didn't do, and but he can't prove it because his memory is wiped. So how does one robot go about proving that? Especially if you're in jail, you have to have someone on your side. But if you're in a sort of demilitarized zone where you're not supposed to be, you look guilty as hell anyway. So this guy basically frames the murder of his daughter on John. And the detective comes from Moloch to sort of investigate. And he is kind of a down and out detective who's just, he's got to go collect garbage basically is what this amounts to is getting a toaster oven from outside the city. And then he gets to talk to John and he starts to then empathize with him, but he never realized that there was a sentience to robots. And then, in fact, we learned that there is a sentience to robots and it goes back a lot longer than he thought. And so once you, once I opened up that can of worms, it was like, oh crap, so what is sentience? And like, if people knew that, would they keep doing this stuff? Like, if you knew that your robot was like a dog, would you keep treating it as such? Or, or does the do the appendages that are meant to mimic humans make the robot more human itself? You know what I mean? Like if you just had a dog robot, would it be easier to treat it like a dog robot, even if it was as intelligent as a human? Yeah. What's the, where's the, where's the line? And like, are you shipping, are these, are there pleasure bots? Are there like, you know, can you make a, can you make a, a, a synthetic that looks just like your boss and beat it up? You know what I mean, like, where's the, what's the line here? And so that's basically what it is. That's basically what it is. And I would like to have it continue with like different stories, a la Star Trek-ish kind of thing. So there's like a different, there's a different scenario and, and the wire. So, so we stay with these characters, but it's a fully fledged out world. And I, I just don't see that happening anymore with the exception of a very couple, few couple of shows. Yeah. Uh, and th- those are timeless themes as well, where you have the European explorer or something like going to Africa and being like, look at these strange beasts or something like that from it's this exactly racist right. point of view. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, it's a story. Uh, it's a- actually, we're all human and conscious and sentient. It's a story um, of colonialism. Yeah. And like, I can write the colonialism story. I'm a white male. Like, I can all write colonialism. I can write it real well. But as far as like telling a black story from, Africa, that's that's difficult. And that I would like more help from. I would welcome other writers and stuff like that to like join us and like especially writers of color. Because that's not that I can't really tell it from that point of view, and I wouldn't want to. It wouldn't sound authentic. So it was kind of it's also it's kind of interesting. Like you as the story goes through, you're like, okay, maybe we shouldn't go that way. That's a little bit warning. So you have to it's a bad it was balancing actually. But I think I think we have something really cool. And it's a long, it's a long story and God, wouldn't it be cool to see that thing blow up? Yeah. Like, I don't want to give too much away. So it, you've kind of jumped back and forth between the idea of like doing a game 
type mm-hmm. system versus doing theatrical type release of, of this or like a series. What, what has that dynamic been in your own production? Well, so every project I take on professionally, all of the things in DC, it's all nonprofits or government related. That's it. There's no, nobody's coming here to shoot models on top of, with, with, with like the, the Washington monument in the background. No, nobody's doing that. There's no Gucci models coming down, you know? So, so, so I'm doing something creative is I have to convince a company, which, and then it goes like, I have to convince a company that one doing this other thing, creative and new is good and valid, even when there isn't empirical evidence to support that, or do they do the tried and true? Most of them go with the tried and true. We want a 30 second commercial that has, you know, three interstitials and then talking heads. And then our logo at the end. And I was like, okay, how do I make that interesting? So one of the things that I got, I, I, I made sort of made me learn it was I wanted to animate people because all these talking heads are boring. You know, there's some people that are dynamic and interesting, but most are, nobody cares about them. Like, what were we said? <laughs> and so, so, okay, what would make it more interesting? I thought it would be more interesting to see like animated people that look like the people talking at least I could have some consistency in the way it's visually presented. Like the lighting would be good. The characters would be halfway interesting. We could edit it and it wouldn't look like we edited it. You know what I mean? There's lots of positives. And, and so I learned how to do that. And that was sort of a nightmare because there's a lot that goes behind that. But so I want to, so by doing that, I sort of would get to know these industries and I would make them part of my workflow. And I think that broke down a lot of barriers for me in terms of doing it by myself so that I could use it for other things. So Body Electric, the game didn't start as a game. I wanted something that would visually portray what I was going for because everyone I was telling this, there's, <laughs> I, it just didn't, it, it was very hard concept. Like they're like, okay, there's an asteroid in the sky. How close is it to Earth? Isn't it, it would be impractical for there to be a tether or an elevator from the bottom of earth all the way to the asteroid. And so even getting that far in the story, it was like non-starter. Unless I could show them like, this is the tether. Here is some scientific (laughs) fact that it could happen. Can we move on? And then, but the story of like a synthetic sentient robot is somehow easier for people to assimilate, but harder to represent on screen. So how do you, like, how would I sell that? You're selling the atmosphere, right? You're selling the cool character you're selling the the noises and the explosions and the suspense and all that stuff is a very visual medium so i thought i could manipulate this game system enough so it could properly represent in 3d form sort of what i was going for to make it to make the purchaser interested in it a little bit and to also make the next person that i creatively get involved with to help along with the project, just easier for them. Just to say like, that's what I want. These are the colors. These are the three characters. We can mess around with this, this, and this. Don't touch that. And then go. And then, so that's like two years of research and development we don't have to do. Yeah. And I think that's the way everything is going to be going because all of these things are going to be like, there's going to be a computer 3D printer, like painter, like you're just going to have to tell it what to do and then it'll just do it for you all in one we're a couple of ways off from that, but it's not, it's, 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 we're, yeah, we're yeah, yeah. Pretty close it's here. To. It's, it's here. here. Yeah. And then 
then that's what people are going to, to expect going forward with these projects and stuff like that. Like, do you have a, do you have a world represented in this and why not? All the stuff is free. What have you been doing sort of thing? Uh, but then I'm an overachiever, so maybe that's all bullshit. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about the overachieving because you have basically learned all these new skills that some people will go four years to school to try to learn. And you've just done it, you know, after school, after work as a passion to to create this story. And so going back, where what drew you to art? Where I, Have you always been interested in art? I believe... You, when you first went out to California, you were a glass artist. And how'd you, how'd you get into that? How'd you get into film and photography? And what was your path? Did you grow up around your parents? Were they artists as well? So yeah, right. I don't know an artist with an artist parent. So <laughs> I think that's the answer to that question. I, like I really don't. I'm trying to think of. I, I don't. I don't think I know any. They're all supportive though, and that's. Like, it's weird. Like, I think art is like depression and support. Like, all, like it, there's like a fine balance of like, how much do people want to see what I do next versus, you know, how much do I want to just sit alone in my room and cry? And like, it's like, <laughs> especially as a kid. And so, yeah, neither of my parents were, were very artistic, but I would write stories as a kid. I remember I loved Lord of the Rings. And one of the, my first short stories was about a dragon and this young woman uh, that in the same universe as Lord of the Rings, but it's a separate story. So I thought it was kind of cool. And so I wrote 15 pages or so. And my mom took it to her with her to work and had some people read it. And then she gave me the feedback. And this is like when I was in eighth grade or ninth grade or something like that. So like, there's the support that I needed. Those, yeah. that, was the, that was my work that someone critiqued and then gave me valid feedback for it. And I think a lot of kids get this bad feedback or it's mixed because they don't know what to use or what not to use in terms of the critique. And so they just think it's all negative and they don't do it. And that's a, that's a shame. But so I went from that to theater and I was a theater, I was a theater nerd for a while. And then I dropped out of high school. And then I moved down to Norfolk, which is the middle of nowhere. There's nothing in Norfolk besides ODU, affectionately, affectionately known as Overdose University. So you, you can yeah. you guess on what goes on down there. And there was only one place I wanted to work, and it was a, it was this dirty head shop on the corner of. It was right oh, right before you get over the bridge to like the place you didn't want to go. So right right there, don't go over the bridge, but we're here. <laughs> And, and, and I worked as like the front of the house person for this crappy little head shop for the better part of a year, seeing all these uh, people walk by to the back to go blow glass. And so the boss had, Adam had, had built a whole glass blowing rig in the back of the shop, but he didn't have anyone to, he knew a little bit about blowing glass, but the guy wasn't really creative in and of itself. And uh, so I watched all these people go in, try it out and then leave. And then basically we were stuck with nothing. We got a couple of pieces of glass and basically we had to buy our own stuff. And I was like, let me try this. I think I could be really good at it. And I tried it and I was really good at it. And we made all these new products and like there was life again in the glass house and that all came to a crashing halt. A, couple, a year later, it didn't matter. It was time for me to go. And so I got the opportunity to go down to Florida and my mom paid for like my first, like, 
couple grams worth of glass blowing stuff. And so that's, I started blowing glass in Navarre, Florida. Where is that? It's in the panhandle. It's right above. There's like 98, which goes from wherever to where that panhandle. And it's called Bloody 98. It's because there were Bruce Fruit shops that you could stop and get like, like a, they would, they would give you a whole like jug of liquor through a drive-through and then they would hand you a straw because <laughs> it was illegal to put the straw in it and serve it to you, but you could just drive wherever. So there's a whole bunch of crashes and anyway, oh, it's, it's, it's the worst, but it's the middle, of, the middle of nowhere. And so I had to go and find all these disparate, not listed anywhere, pet shops during Operation Pipe Dreams, which is George Bush era. They put Chong in jail, like, like all this Jesus. stuff, like, like a port shop, like this guy has a, smokes weed and he's put in jail. It doesn't matter. So everyone's like really hush hush about this stuff because they basically could write there. It was like the Patriot Act. They could just close down anywhere just because they could. And it was crazy. And so I was blowing glass and then trying to find these shops to sell to. And, but I didn't have a kiln. And one thing that's very important for glass blowing is kilns. Lots of heat. Well, it sets the glass and, and you, there's almost no, there is one way to work without it. And that's what I was using in the beginning. And it's like, fill this tub up with this vermiculite, which is a mineral that doesn't burn. So you can actually put the piece of glass hot in it and then put the vermiculite in the oven so that it, it heats up to a solid temperature and then you let it slow down coolly and hopefully it will have not cracked in the morning. Anyway, it doesn't yeah. work very well. And a lot of my pieces would be cracked a week later. And so we okay. get the, I got a couple of complaints about kids coming back and like being like, oh, it cracked, you know, can I get my money back? And so I get these feedback calls saying your pieces are cracking. You know, I was like, damn it, it's the kill. And one of the guys that called that uh, wanted to help me was a guy named Kai. And he was this much better glass lower. And he was getting rid of one of his kilns and I bought it for cheap from him and he sold it from like in good faith to me. And uh, with like a, a, I was making no money. So I did like five monthly payments of a hundred dollars and to have this life-saving kiln. And so I started using it blowing glass and like he was teaching me new techniques and it was really cool. And I would print my own invoices and I would drive to the store and I had this silver briefcase that I would open up that had the cushions on either side and I had all my glass in it. And I had the invoice in there, it looked all professional. And then Hurricane Katrina came. Jesus. And it, yeah, <laughs> it, it literally leveled everything in the panhandle, just like everything, including the stores that I sold to, all these like nice, like hippies, like everyone's one store hippies and things. I'm sure that, you know, it was just gone. It was gone. Broken and glass it, everywhere. Broken, yeah. It's just a nightmare for a, if you were in a in that situation, in that house at the time. Anyway, yeah, so all these places were gone. So I wanted to follow my other, with my main pursuit, which is to go make movies for a living, which has always been in the back of my mind. I just didn't know how to get there because I wasn't a very good actor and I was not good looking at all. Like, at, like at where I, it took me like years to develop good looking. You're looking is very hard. <laughs> it turns out, and and uh, so so, but I had this dream. I just wanted to go out there. I knew that if I got out there, someone would see me, and then I I just be in a movie or something. <laughs> and who knows? And so she she had already moved out there. Kai had. He offered me a place. It small place. It was above a. It, it was in a one of the a twenty foot Winnebago, 
It was the space caboose right above the driver's seat. So that little <laughs> that little space was my home for a year. That's in, commitment. In, in Duarte in California. Oh my god. And I, we, with the, he had a dog too, man. I'm allergic, so you can imagine like this is not the best situation for me. And uh, I went to a couple of you know tryouts, and it wasn't. I just wasn't. The people there were just so much better. They're just like they were like born to do this. They've been waiting their entire life to memorize those three lines and recite it any way you want. And I was not. I I was just like, oh, I'm gonna just. I'll just, I memorized some stuff from like Goodwill Hunting and thought I would use that as my like demo or whatever, but I didn't even remember all of the lines. So I wasn't really sure what I would do even when I got inside one of these things. So it didn't work out. And I ended up coming back to DC and I signed up for arts college and then I met a couple of friends there and I did the backwards thing, which is I, I somehow reorganized my general ed. So they'd come at the end. And I took all my 301, 401 classes up front, which they didn't like. They ended up not sponsoring me for my Discovery Channel internship. And so I had to go to NOVA, which is Northern Virginia Community College, and sign up for a survey course in order to get a credit so that I could go to be an intern at Discovery Channel. Uh, that school, the art school, is now closed down by the government, and it was called the Art Institute of Washington. So uh, don't go to the art institutes. <laughs> Why was it closed down? Uh, it was closed down because they were misleading students, and, and you know, five thousand dollars for a like English course, yeah. like they're giving to poor kids. Like they're saying, hey, you yeah. can be a you can be a commercial photographer. You've got talent. You can. We, and if you don't have talent, we'll we'll make you ready. Yeah, and Predatory. so they, man, yeah. they kept on putting on. Now, and then DC is flooded with all these mediocre photographers that are were poor to begin with, but now they don't have a, they're not good at the skill and they're trying to use it. And then you just have a bunch of mediocre, anyway. And they're in debt. And like predatory and like 50,000, like I, I did, I did half the classes. I had $50,000 worth of learns still. Yeah, yeah, like there's yeah. kids, my old business partner had $180,000 worth of learn. Like just, he's an yeah. artist. What the, yeah. what, what are we supposed to do with that? <laughs> Discharge <laughs> it, it in. Just bankruptcy like, court if you could but you can't but, with most can't. Yeah, school loans yeah like <laughs> i would forget that every five years and then look it up and be like maybe <laughs> even if we just did the bankruptcy thing it was like you cannot do bankruptcy things <laughs> i think that was passed in like 20 years ago or something like that probably right around the time i needed it <laughs> hmm. and so i got this thing of discovery and I was like, all right, I'm going to be making original programming. This is going to be amazing. And then you get to discovery and they're like, all right, these are all of our analog equipments. You're going to have to learn all of this. And then do you tackle this metadata stuff about dogs? And then you go home. And you were, I remember thinking like, this is not, is this how all shows are? How do you make a show? And they're like, oh, well, we don't make shows. And I was like, what do you mean you don't make shows? <laughs> they don't really have it. They didn't have any original programming. They buy all their programming, like from separate production houses. And, uh, and so they don't actually do anything in-house, except for Discovery Studios, which does a couple of shows. And that's where, I, that's where I ended up working. I forced myself to be in there. So I got to see like really cool stuff on, on like, I, one of my first editing assignment was overcoming obstacles for like a diabetes hour long special or something like that. And I got to cut the first trailer for it. 
and I had no idea how to use Avid. And so I was on the, they'd had phones in the offices and I had the producer behind me and I was like, Hey, and I would pick up the phone and be another editor. And I was like, Hey, Kyra, how do I do slow-mo? Make it till you make it. Like, then it, like yeah. ask. Yeah. I mean, how else are you going to, so once that bubble was burst and discovery channels didn't make any of their own stuff, they eventually, they eventually moved out. So now there's a whole bunch of editors I could imagine in Silver Spring, Maryland, which I don't know. I don't know what they're doing now, but I don't know or where they went, but that facility was huge. Yeah. And then I discovered that DC is not where you create original sort of fictional entertainment content. And it's taken me like 10 years to slowly figure that out. But at the same time, I was honing my craft. So nothing's wasted. I'm still young. And I think I I have a, I still have the dream, which I think if I had still been in Los Angeles, since I was there last time, 20 years ago, I think that dream would have burst. I would have been back here and probably pretty sad, maybe, because I hadn't developed any of these other sort of products that I have. It took me a long time to like, find my voice and have confidence in, in my artistic ability. And, and also how do you collaborate? Like that's a skill that is like a, one of the hardest, most elusive skills, I think is like a true collaboration is, is an absolute, it's a work of art. It's like a, you see it sometimes like the live, like Denis Villeneuve has did the Dune and the Blade Runner and Arrival and all these great films, but it's like, He's got to put the team together and it took them a long time to do it. And like they're gaining confidence, but they're handling the biggest, most successful franchises of all time. And it's strictly because he's that, that entire team knows how to work together. And that's something that I still, I would love to sort of flex and you don't get to do any of that. Like there's nobody here that does any of that stuff. Like, there's no studios or anything. So it's been an uphill battle. So I decided to make my own stuff. So that that may be the lesson learned that you would pass on to people who are just coming into this industry. But are are there other things or is there any like one or two lessons that you wish you knew 20 years ago? Or is this something that it's just the hard road that you every person has to walk and really kind of find their own voice through just the, the trials and tribulations. Yeah. I would say, I would say a lesson I've learned is, is nothing happens in a vacuum, even original art. It doesn't become that way just because you will it into existence. It's there's a, there's a, it's a, it's a, it's a consequence. There's a domino effect and it's, it's cumulative. And unless you have the experience, you're ever going to know what the other thing is. So go have the experience, say yes. Like we'll raise your, I remember going to school and I was always the first person that like would raise their hand to go do something without knowing kind of what it was, but people one would respect you. And two, you got to learn it before anyone else. So like, that's a huge advantage. Just go first. Like, you know, people respect the shit out of that. Even if it's crappy, like most of the first anything is bad. But uh, yeah, it was actually, it was raising your hand, asking questions. And then what was the other thing? All, all of the information is siloed now, but it is available. And there are, there are people that want to help. 
So there are places you can go for, for like assistance. Discord is a huge one now. There are tons of separate channels that are, are about one topic that are in depth and have constant input. Like there is a, if I wanted to build a character for Unreal, there's a Discord Unreal character channel. If I wanted to make a science fiction film that like is only about one thing, I, there is a Discord channel for that. And it's all informative and everyone's like, wants to help. So look for the places that would, that have an honest sort of collaborative environment where you can be stupid or have an original idea. No one's going to bat it down. Everyone thinks that commenting is going to yield some sort of new uh, mind expanding knowledge. Like, like the next comment in the series is going to be exceptionally brilliant. And that's not the case. Like you have to, you have to search out the knowledge for yourself. You have to vet the knowledge, you know, and then you have to like work on that yourself. So, you know, be careful where you, where you look. It's not expensive. That's the other thing. All this, it's not expensive. Any of this stuff that I've been doing is not expensive. The expensive stuff is the stuff that you have to do afterwards that is not involved in the creative stuff. Like making the, making all this stuff is, I just did it on my own. But flying to California is expensive and uh, getting a place to stay is expensive and doing it when you're 40 is expensive. You're doing it for two people or children, or are you moving everyone out? Is it going to be a long distance relationship? Where are we living? Like how much money are you devoting to one thing and how long do you do that thing for before it becomes something you shouldn't be doing? You know, when can, when do you say no creatively is also hard that and I'm terrible at talking to people. So I also had to force myself to network and talk about myself, which is hard. I think I avoided successfully for 15 minutes in this interview, not talking about myself. And then you're like, about body electric. Let's bring it back to Like, so, And so but it's a conscious, to, like I, yeah. I have to think about it in order for it to be, because, and it's just because I did it myself. It's, I hated people that claimed that they knew a thing or did a thing and had nothing to show for it. And my boss used to say, claimer, like here's the skater guy. And he would, he would always say that out loud. And I had no idea what kind of what it meant at the time. And he was like, oh, cause he did, he's like, he made a store and he built it and he's blowing the glass so we can, he knows what he's talking about. Like there's a, there's yeah. a knowledge to that, not just a sort of a, an emotional response but I don't know. I don't know if anyone really cares. Like, I, I know people care, but like, where do they care and what do they care about? That's like the whole, I mean, social media, man. I don't, yeah, I don't even know where to get started on that. <laughs> so looking forward, what are, what, what's your next steps with Body Electric and uh, any other projects you have in the pipeline? Um, Body Electric. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in order for me to keep selling the idea <clears throat> I put in, I would take the, I'm taking all the scripts and I'm doing sort of an advanced script preparation. So I have to hand some scripts and it would have the title page that has a show Bible, which explains sort of synopsis and then each episode in the series, what that's about. And then in the beginning, there's going to be like a artistic representation of each of the characters, the main characters of the piece. And then so people have an idea of sort of what sort of images are going to be conjured, especially with science fiction and then the script. And then during the script, I'm going to put in keyframes 
of what's going on that I've already drawn. So it'll give people like a little, people aren't creative. You need to help them along in a sense. Yeah. And I just did my children. So, well, the next thing is to get a publisher. Right. But do I go to a film production house or I was thinking because the game is so is coming along so nicely and it's sort of in the last month has really jumped out. Like it's atmospheric, it's fun, it's it's really interesting. And so I want to actually take that game and go to a Bethesda Softworks is right up the road owned by Xenomax. There's uh, Steam and the people at Valve that made Monolith and Square Enix that made Deus Ex and their Cyberpunk just came out, but it was awful and people panned. So that's a little bit of a warning shot. Make it better than that, probably. And uh, so how, how would I sell, how do you sell the game? I have no idea. So what I'm gonna do is I built the game and then I have three hour long scripts and like a whole concept. So I figured I'd go pitch to them and, and one, try and sell them a game idea. If they like that, then I would like to do, have them be a production partner and film using their studios. Why not? Or at least having them as like a, a production partner so that going forward, everything is creatively exactly like I laid out. And it's not like one place does the video game and one place does the movie and they're nothing alike and that's it. Yeah. And so five years away soon. And so, but how do you, again, I have nothing, there was, I didn't have anything. I still, like, I just have a bunch of like nonprofit videos that, I can't show anyone. Like, who am I? <laughs> this is my this is my American Council's promo video. I hope you enjoy it. But this is nobody cares. And for, so I was like, okay, well, what's creative that I've really wanted to do and would kind of get my foot in the door and would be interesting. And I, I took a series of paintings and I made a children's book sort of around them called Oh So Many Me's. And I wrote it with my well, I my mom edited it and co-wrote it. And then the design and layout by Sean Schroth, who is all things photograph, photography up at American University. And then I have my barcode in the back, which goes to my website. And I got it printed in Shenzhen, which was an interesting process, <laughs> which I can share at a later date. But now we have something physical that I can take and say, I did this. I can do this. And then I also have a game now. So things are happening. I'm not sure if they're the right things, but it seems like they're the right things. I don't know. Yeah. Some people think it's cool. Other people I think, think yeah. I think it's amazing. And I, I think the the process that you've gone through to learn all these things makes you uniquely placed to to be able to direct this and to be able to produce this. And <laughs> it's just getting the money and distribution essentially. <laughs> Right. <laughs> the hardest. Well, the right. easiest in some sense. That's the easiest because there's there's billions of dollars out there and it is. But, I, I wish but I then just, yeah, how do you get it? Right. So it's it's, just, it's interest. And unless somebody sees your product or you're yeah. there in the room, which is why LA matters, because that's where the money is, that's where all everything entertainment is. If I wanted to go to a meeting um and I wanted to really sell someone on me as a person, which is what they're buying, I gotta be there. Yeah. And Zoom is okay. Does fine in Zoom and slide decks. Then you're going into PowerPoint territory, and then <laughs> and then people make terrible slide decks, and then it's like all downhill from there. So I want to avoid that at all costs. But yeah, the money thing is, I I, I just I, I that's the one thing I've never had. So I'm okay without it for now. 
Like I get it. I can, I could do the poor, the poor thing I know, but yeah, the money thing I have, honestly, I have no idea about like yeah. that. like, I, I don't know any accountants. I, I've never, I've never actually had a fun conversation with a lawyer. I've never known an ad exec. Um, you know what I mean? Like where, where, where all like to me, they're, these are all myths. Um, I don't know where, I don't know where they are. Strike up, strike up a good Like who has a best friend that's an accountant? Like I, I don't. I would like to know them. So if any of your viewers have any, would like to get into contact with me about entertainment. Yeah. They can DM me. Excellent. Well, Patrick Hale, thank you so much for your time and sharing your process on artist works in closing everyone in the audience, where should they go to follow your. Um, Rooksproductions.com is my production video production site. And if you want to find out more about the film, you can go to www.bodyelectricseries.com. And so website I built myself and you can also read the evaluations, all of them for the scripts. And I think I've got also all of the scripts up on my website. So you can read even our very first science fiction script. Actually, I totally forgot about first science fiction script was called The Sound of Gravity. And it's a great hour long sort of pulpy time traveling world. That's sort of, oh, there was a really good... What was our log line? It's the big Lebowski meets um, time back to the future at that, that go wild with that image. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. So all the scripts are up there and I'd love for anyone to read them and please give me some feedback. I love feedback, good or bad. Yeah. Patrick, thanks again for your time and uh, I'll see you on the other side, man. Awesome. Thank you so much, Evan. Thank you.